I'm Dan Kurtzphalen, and this is the Foreign Affairs Interview. Let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. The multilateral trading system is a global public good built in a tough and hard way over the past 75 years. It has delivered. It has its problems. One must admit that, and being a person from a developing country, I can see that. However, it has delivered. After World War II, an idea took hold. Economic interdependence between countries would help prevent war. But lately, faith in this idea has wavered, and terms like decoupling, friendshoring, and de-risking are dominating debates around trade in Washington and beyond. Dr. Ngozi Okonjo-Iweala, the Director General of the World Trade Organization and the first woman and African to serve in that role, disagrees with key elements of the new consensus. She thinks policymakers are misdiagnosing the problems the world faces, and they risk setting us on a dangerous course, one that could break the global economy and leave the world both less prosperous and less secure. Dr. Ngozi, thank you so much for joining us and for the trenchant essay you contributed to our July-August issue. Thank you, Dan. I want to start with the point you open your essay on. I'm quoting you here. The international economic architecture built after 1945 was based on a powerful idea. Economic interdependence is crucial, if insufficient, for global peace and prosperity. But economic interdependence is no longer seen as a virtue. It is seen as a vice. The new mantra is that what countries need is not interdependence, but independence, with integration limited at best to a small circle of friendly nations. What was the view of interdependence that would have held among most policymakers a few decades ago? And why has it changed? What is the new consensus and why have we gotten there? Well, you know, it's really pretty fundamental. I mean, when these multilateral organizations were founded, the idea was that economic interdependence would bring peace. If countries trade with each other and have economic dealings with each other, they're less likely to go to war. So interdependence was seen as something that was positive. And I think that over these 75 years, that idea has largely delivered. And it's something we must not lose sight of. But I think that starting slightly more than a decade ago, when after the integration of China into the, into the world trading system and the countries in Eastern Europe, the great era of integration and globalization was kind of the gains had been made. And we began to see a slowdown in what one would call globalization and its gains. And also the idea that perhaps globalization is not benefiting everybody began to hold sway. I think that idea has been in intensified by the multiple crises that we've experienced starting with the Great Recession and the global financial crisis of 2008 to 2010. You fast forward now to first the pandemic, which had a really devastating impact, if not for the tremendous fiscal stimulus that was, you know, implemented by many of the developed countries. You lay on that the war in Ukraine. And I must say that we should not forget the continuous crisis of climate change which is an existential threat. So you look at these series of crises and the impacts they've had, and uh, particularly during the pandemic, when great vulnerabilities of supply chains 
were exposed. People began to look on this as, well, maybe interdependence is more of a problem than it, it is a positive. So I think these are the causes of the recent acceleration in thinking. But our thesis and what I was trying to point out in foreign affairs is that we should be very careful in drawing this conclusion. Sure, we saw vulnerabilities exposed in supply chains and we have to deal with that. But we should look carefully at the causes of this. It's not trade. It is concentration of manufacturing in certain sectors and concentration of production in certain countries of certain products. That is the issue. We want interdependence, but not overdependence. That's what I'm trying to say. I want to linger a bit on the economic effects of the huge growth in global trade that you chart in your piece over the course of the last several decades. You note that since 1990, the share of the world's population living in extreme poverty has fallen by three quarters. And at the center of this great leap in human well-being was a 20-fold increase in international trade volumes, which helped lift per capita incomes by a factor of 27 over the last six decades. That's that's from your piece. I would note that there's another essay in the issue by the economist Branko Milanovic making the point that global inequality has fallen to more than 100-year lows, even as inequality within countries has grown. So on some level, the economic record is pretty compelling in the, the account that you give of trade's impact on that record. I think that's with the accounts of most, though not all economists, but is really out of step with broader perceptions in the public. Why is there that gap in your view between what looks like a very compelling record and then this deteriorating politics of trade, especially in developed economies. You know, you're absolutely right that there's a a public perception issue. I was looking at some results from an Ipsos poll from August 2021, which found that on average, 75% of those surveyed agreed that expanding trade is a good thing. But only 48% agree that globalization is a good thing. So whilst people think that expanding trade is a good thing, they certainly think that globalization is to blame for some of the problems that they have. And if you look at further the results, you find that the least positive views on this come from countries that have benefited quite a bit from globalization. The developed countries such as France and Belgium, people there have the least positive views in this regard, whereas in developing countries like Malaysia, South Africa, Peru, Brazil, you see people have more positive views. But it's interesting to me, I think those who are yet to benefit to pull their countries completely out of poverty and make them richer still see some benefits in this, whilst those who have arrived, quote unquote, think that they're losing. In, in this game. Now, I want to say that in that public perception, sometimes trade is blamed for things that are attributable to technology, and the two are confounded. If you look at what's happening, let's say, in the coal mines of West Virginia, certainly a lot of, the, of what is happening is due to advances in technology in the way mining is done, as opposed to the fact that there's globalization and trade that is taking away jobs from miners. But very often the two are sort of mixed together. So there's that problem that we need to deal with. But all that being said, I also want to be very careful to admit that in globalization, it is true that there were winners and losers. Poor people in rich countries who lost out and poorer countries, developing countries who did not benefit. 
So if you put all of this together with the fact that there are rising powers among emerging markets who seem to be benefiting so much from globalization, I mean, China's rise has been unprecedented and at a rate that was not reckoned with. All this gives the impression that somehow the multilateral trading system is the problem. But my thesis is that some of that is true and has to be dealt with by reimagining globalization. It's not putting it away or throwing it out uh, uh, or, or turning your back on it because the world has had more positives from it than negatives. But it is saying, how do we reimagine and reconfigure the next wave of globalization? And that's what we are talking about at the WTO. When you look back at, at China's entry into the WTO, do you see things that could have been done differently to address some of the shocks and some of the kind of particular challenges of this large non-market economy entering the WTO and entering the multilateral trading system? Well, let's put it this way. If you, you've quoted all the numbers, I don't have to repeat them, of how the global economy and the world has benefited at, at large from the integration of China and other countries into the multilateral trading system. I, I think that net-net, consumers in developed countries saw a, a huge disinflationary impact from the entry of China. Global supply chains were developed in a way that we had never seen them before. And although it didn't bring all countries into the trading system, uh, and we're arguing we should do more of that, it certainly brought in more. So I think if you look at the impact, you will say that all around, both developed and developing countries benefited. But perhaps the pace at which this happened was not expected. And I'm sure there are certain things that could probably have been done better in the entry into the world trading system. But I don't think we can say that China's entry into the world trading system has resulted in a negative for the world. All the numbers show otherwise. Our global poverty has fallen, how consumers have benefited. And, you know, the, the interesting thing is that what also does not show is how when jobs in manufacturing disappear in one part, jobs that are created in services, for instance, are not taken account of. Trade also creates jobs in services. And the fastest growing segment of trade right now is in services and in digitally delivered services trade, which is growing at 8% and creating jobs for small, micro and medium enterprises and women and youth all over the world. That's the first point I want to make. The second point is that it also depends on what type of active labor market policies accompanied some of the changes and dislocations that happened when China integrated and Eastern European countries into the trading system. The whole idea was that it was recognized, yes, that there would be changes. When you integrate new countries, things don't just stay the same. So the idea is that where there are losers, governments would have active labor market policies and social protection policies that would help to either protect people who are losing out or create new jobs and so on. But in many countries, that did not happen. Actually, if you look at some of the Scandinavian countries who spending on active labor market policies and social protection as a percent of GDP are much higher than, say, the U.S., you'll find that the dislocations experienced there by workers and so are much better cushioned. 
So I think some of those things could have been done better. Certainly, there would have been uh, also a need to look at some of the agreements that were made, some of them before China joined the system, to see how do we shift these agreements in light of bringing in a huge economy like China. Some of these agreements were entered into before China came into the picture. There should have been a look to see, do we now need to review, revise, and redo these agreements in light of admitting? Once agreements are made, they don't have to be cast in concrete forever. And I think the failure to review some of these and say, how do we revise them, may have been one of the things that could have been done better. And just to make sure I understand this, the problem there is that China subsidizes its industries at a, at a scale that goes beyond what was typical in the trading system before it joined. Well, we have problems with subsidies everywhere, I have to say. You know, so, so several members of the WTO feel that China may be subsidizing certain industrial activities and sectors in a manner that disadvantages other members. China itself feels that other members are subsidizing agriculture in manners that are also not competitive. So all our members have complaints about subsidies of one sort or the other. And that is why at this moment we embarked on an exercise that is looking at subsidies. And of course, you know, we have new industrial subsidies coming in now by some of our developed country members. So we're trying to look at these subsidies issues across the board, industrial subsidies, uh, agricultural subsidies, green subsidies, to try and see how do we make sense of this all? How does this accord with the agreements and the rules that we have? And how do we stop or, or manage what may turn out to be distortionary approaches that could be detrimental to developing countries, for instance, who don't have the fiscal wherewithal to compete when you have a subsidy race? We do hope it doesn't go into a kind of subsidy race, whether it's in industry, green or agriculture. When you talk about industrial uh, subsidies, I assume one thing you're referring to there is the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States that was passed about a year ago. What's the state of discussions about preventing a, a race to the bottom with subsidies, with everyone trying to kind of outdo one another and that becoming its own kind of protectionist spiral? Well, what we try to encourage among our members, when some members, Japan, the EU, Korea and others, you know, felt that perhaps uh, some of the subsidies in the Inflation Reduction Act may be uh, anti-competitive or distortionary, we, we did um, urge a dialogue with the United States. We prefer when our members can talk to each other, when they have problems. We do have committees here at the WTO where we can exchange views. It's one of the good things about the WTO that people really don't know, that it offers a forum in these committees or fora where members can come together and put their complaints on the table, exchange information and views. Now, I have to say that one has to be very clear. There are no WTO rules that are against trying to get to net zero by 2050 and reducing carbon emissions and trying to go green. This is something we all want. And it's laudatory when we see some of our members trying to go in that direction. I think the question is how? What are the modalities for doing it? And how do other members see this in comparison with what they are trying to do? So we did urge members to talk to each other, to try to come to some arrangement or agreement that would not make them feel that this is being anti-competitive. And I believe this has happened 
in a reasonable way. You've seen the EU dialoguing with the US, you've seen Korea and Japan and various uh, accommodations and uh, have been made or are being made between these members to try and see if they can reach an agreement that both sides can live with. Serving as director general of the World Trade Organization has never been an especially easy job, but it strikes me that it's probably harder than it's than it's ever been, or at least harder than it's been in many decades since you took over. When you talk to national leaders and policymakers about trade, what kind of conversations are you having and what do you see your role as when it comes to engaging political leadership to help further a consensus around trade, a consensus that, as you noted, has eroded quite quite a bit in the last few years? I would be remiss to say, yes, it's a very difficult job because obviously this is a time of great geopolitical tensions in the world. We've got the war in Ukraine that is going on. We've got tensions between China and the United States and things are very tight. Even on a daily basis, we have to manage these tensions at the WTO. However, I must say that much as the job is challenging, I also find it very exciting and very worthwhile in the sense that, look, let's step back a bit. We need to recognize that trade is at an all-time high. Total trade in goods and services is at $31 trillion, an all-time high. 75% of this trade is being done on a most favored nation basis, meaning it's been done on WTO terms. So people are still doing the majority of trade on terms and commitments made at the WTO. This is very encouraging. So we need to step back a bit and have that in perspective. Secondly, even between those members that where there, there are these geopolitical tensions, I would say if you look at the numbers of trade between China and the United States, Commerce Department figures released last year at an all-time high of about $690 billion. You look at EU and China, over $800 billion. So certainly the numbers are still very robust. Now, does that mean that these problems don't exist? No, but when I do talk to leaders, I try to remind two or three things. First, let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. The multilateral trading system is a global public good built in a tough and hard way over the past 75 years. It has delivered. It has its problems. One must admit that. And being a person from a developing country, I can see that. However, it has delivered. So let's keep that in mind with respect to poverty and improved incomes and wealth. Second is that we will not be able to solve the problems of the global commons we have today if we allow the trading system to fragment. Talk is cheap. It's easy to talk of decoupling, fragmentation, but the costs will be extremely high. We have done work at the WTO that shows that if we fragment into two trading blocks, it's going to result in a 5% loss in real global GDP over the longer term. This is huge. The IMF has done similar work and come up with a number of 7%. If we look at developing economies, we're talking of double-digit losses. So this is not something that the world can afford. And so that's one thing I do put in front of uh, leaders, that fragmentation would not be to the benefit. But it's not only in economics. How do you solve the problems of the global commons like climate change if we fragment and if we don't have trade? You need trade in order to get technologies, green technologies, 
from places where they are made to places where they are needed. You need trade to mitigate and adapt to climate change. We cannot solve the climate change problem without trade. And we need global cooperation to achieve all of this. Now, does that mean that we don't recognize the problems? I also talk about the problems that are there in the, in the trading system, in the supply chains where we see vulnerabilities. We must build global resilience. I don't think it's right that when we have a pandemic, 80% of vaccines are exported by 10 countries in the world. We've seen the consequences of that, which is poorer countries at the back of the queue, not getting access to vaccines still. It's too late and unnecessarily losing lives. So that's a concentrated supply chain. But in a global environment where you have a pandemic and people are dying, maybe we need to deconcentrate that supply chain and build resilience for the world. And minerals that we now need for renewables and to go green. There are concentrations of this, either in processing or even in the product. In certain countries, China is one, uh, and, and there are other countries. Should we have that? Or should we try to find a way to deconcentrate and, in, in, and build resilience by broadening the supply? Absolutely, we, we should do that. Semiconductors. Is it right that such a, an important thing is concentrated in one or two countries for the manufacture? No, we need to build resilience. So let's recognize the vulnerabilities in supply chains that exist and try to build resilience by doing what we call re-globalization. What does this mean? We believe that you can you know, reimagine trade to deconcentrate supply chains where it's necessary to many more countries in the world so that you have many more options for supplies and countries are not so vulnerable. We call it re-globalization. I really want people to pick up on that word because it's imagining, reimagining globalization to be more inclusive and more resilient. That all sounds very intuitive on one level, but as you, of course, know better than anyone, the policy pressure in most major economies is more focused around what at least in the United States, people call friendshoring, you know, a real focus on concentrating supply chains among geopolitically reliable uh, allies and partners. Is that consistent with the kind of vision you see for the multilateral trading system? Is that inconsistent with what we need to get the system working? Well, let's put it this way. I see changes occurring in the language. There was a lot of talk at the, of decoupling at the height of the pandemic when these vulnerabilities of supply chains came to the fore. Let's accept that there will be a certain amount of reshoring. That will be inevitable, whether it be in, in, in semiconductors or other high technology products. So there are some emerging trends. But I can tell you that now, when we listen to what the president of, of the European Commission had to say, also President Ursula von der Leyen, she began to talk of de-risking not decoupling. So I think that there's also an emerging realization that to build resilience in the world is probably people say, what is de-risking? And it, it tends to be described in a negative way. We don't see it that way. We think it is very close to what we call re-globalization. Let us try to de-risk what we're doing by moving to diversifying supply chains to many more countries. So yes, there will be some reshoring. It's inevitable. But I hope and believe it will not be to the extent to which 
people had imagined when talk of decoupling began a, a year or two ago. Just imagine climate change, Dad. If you reshore everything and you have the kind of events we are having, how does that help? You make yourself more vulnerable, not less. When your friend shore, fine, but your friend today might not be your friend tomorrow. So what does that mean? I think this concept of building resilience by diversifying supply chains is a much more solid basis. This re-globalization is a much more solid basis on which to build. We'll be back after a short break. The APEC CEO Summit is returning to the United States. The most influential meeting of world leaders and business executives in the Asia-Pacific will convene in San Francisco from November 14th to 16th to focus on creating economic opportunity for the region. With invited world leaders, including President Biden and President Xi, and business executives from leading companies, including Citi, General Motors, Organon, Visa, and more, the APEC CEO Summit is the premier forum to address challenges and opportunities facing the public and private sector in the Asia-Pacific. Discussions will focus on sustainability, inclusion, resilience, and innovation. Don't miss your chance to join the conversation. Request your invitation at apexceosummit2023.com. That's A-P-E-C-C-E-O-Summit2023.com. It seems very hard for the multilateral trading system to move forward as long as the two biggest economies in the world, the United States and China, aren't working constructively with one another. What are the limits of what can be done with or without those two big economies, given the state of relations between them? Well, obviously, tensions between China and the United States, which are getting more difficult on a daily basis, they make life pretty tough, including at the WTO. However, you know that at the WTO, any one member, it's a consensus-based organization, so it's not just the U.S. or China, any one member can stop things from happening. Uh, so we pay attention to the geopolitical tension, but that doesn't mean that we don't pay attention to developing countries and their views. If they feel that what is going on is not to their liking, they can also weigh in and stop agreements. But the point I want to make to you is in spite of these tensions, the WTO is actually the one multilateral where the United States and China have been able to work together to deliver an agreement. And I think that this is something that needs to be brought to the knowledge and consciousness of many. For the first time, with China around the table, the US around the table, the EU, India, South Africa, African countries and Pacific countries, we were able to deliver a multilateral agreement, the fishery subsidies agreement, which for the past 20 years, this organization has not been able to negotiate and deliver. So I'm proud of our members that they were able to put aside their differences for the common good. They realized that, look, this is an issue of sustainability of our oceans and fisheries. This is for mankind, and we need to come together, put aside our differences, and agree. They did it. And we continue to have the U.S. and China have a productive relationship at the WTO in spite of the tensions. So I do want to submit that this organization, this multilateral, is one of the few places where the U.S. and China are actually working together. You noted that developing countries have become greater champions of trade and globalization than, than most rich world economies. Now you have the North 
you know, turning inward and against trade, whether that's Brexit or U.S. policy, while much of the global South is embracing globalization and openness and integration, what happened and, and what will it take in your view for the developing world and developing world leaders to bring developed countries back to the table and drive further progress? Well, let's be careful. Huh? Developing countries have their issues with globalization too and with the multilateral trading system. So I don't want to sound like, uh, the, you know, they don't have any issues. Of course, the poll shows people in developing countries having a better view. Of, of the multilateral trading system globalization, but certainly they would complain that developing countries don't get enough recognition of their issues and they are not given enough uh, support in terms of what is called special and differential treatment. That is enough space to be able to take time to implement the agreements and policies. But that being said, it is rather interesting, as you say, that many developing countries are wanting to embrace the multilateral trading system, integration, because they feel this would be beneficial. Now, how does this work? I think that even though developed countries seem to be less favorable, they've not moved away from the table. That is the heartening thing. They have not moved away. There may be those who put some tariffs in the past and there may be dislocation to the trading system, but nobody has withdrawn. Why is that? I think there's a strong realization that if you don't have the WTO, you would have to invent it because it would be a free for all. It would absolutely imagine a world in which these agreements don't exist. The WTO framework does not. What does that mean? Anyone can slap whatever tariffs they like. They can ban whatever product. It will be not a rules-based, but a power-based system. And in a power-based system, I think everyone loses in the world we're in. That realization, I think, is keeping developed countries at the table, maybe not contented, but they're there. And their being there gives a chance for that dialogue to continue, for us to talk about how do we strengthen the system to perform better, not do away with it. Let me close with one more question about American policy. In Jake Sullivan's speech in the spring, he noted that there have been serious challenges to the WTO's core values, including non-market economic practices and policies. And he noted that the U.S. is working with the WTO to reform the multilateral trading system. And he mentioned a, a slew of issues that he sees as needing to change for a new system. What are the hard issues as you look at reform and what would a new and improved multilateral trading system look like? What's the, what's the state of that process? Well, I think a new and improved multilateral trading system, we've talked about elements of what I think it should do. It should include diversifying these supply chains and re-globalizing, bringing those who have been left out. That's certainly an important element. But at the WTO, it would include dealing with legacy issues, you know, trying to solve problems that have been festering for a long time, agreements that have not been made in agriculture, for instance. We're in a world in which food security is one of the overriding issues that we're dealing with. High food prices, inflationary prices since the war in Ukraine has been an issue, especially for poor countries. Yet, we have an agriculture agreement that has been under negotiation for the past 22 years, trying to make a breakthrough in making agricultural trade fairer and more beneficial for all. That certainly, getting to grips with that legacy issue is crucial to 
what we are trying to do in the world. And that's one of the deliverables, I would say, we would have to do. But we need to strengthen our negotiation function, monitoring function, as well as our dispute settlement function, which you know is one of a kind in the world. This is the only place where members can bring disputes you know, that they have with each other, apart from the discussions we have in the committees, we have that system. I think a very crucial piece of the reform architecture that everyone wants, including the U.S., I think, even though it's the U.S. that protested against it and, and has not allowed judges of the appellate body to be nominated, but the U.S. has also been very active recently in trying to say, look, we also want to see this system reformed. And that is a very crucial piece of the reform, the reform of the dispute settlement systems. So that we are working on it now, I have to tell you a little bit of good news there. Informally, we've been having many discussions. Uh, we have someone leading these reforms. And we hope that by our 13th ministerial meeting in Abu Dhabi in February, we would have made a great deal of headway in trying to say what will be the new architecture that will be satisfactory to all members, both developing, developed, including the United States. So this is a very big piece. I also want to end with reforming the WTO also means making it attuned with 21st century issues. And these are the issues that are so exciting to me, Dan. When you think about the fact that services trade and digitally delivered services trade, going digital is the way trade is going. You ask yourself, so how does the WTO help make this happen? How does it help create the level playing field? This is very much a 21st century issue. And I'm happy to say that over 90 of our members at the WTO are negotiating an e-commerce agreement. Hopefully, in a year, within a year, we'll be able to conclude this, which will lay the foundations, the rules of the game for digital trade. So this is a 21st century issue, and this is something uh, that we are working on. Another aspect is inclusion. You talked about inequality within countries. You know, you said Branko Milanovic, my former colleague's work, shows inequality between countries, between regions falling, but within countries, within regions, it, it's increasing. And I think since the pandemic, that has gotten worse. So we all have to worry about what is happening globally with inequality, with more poverty. And I think that one of the 21st century agendas that the WTO has to grapple with is how does the WTO and how does trade become more inclusive? How do we deliver for small and medium enterprises? How do we deliver for women in trade? How do we get them more included? We know that women who export earn almost three times more than those who sell domestically. This is an incentive for us, for the WTO, to look at rules and means and supply-side interventions that can help us lift up women. So this is another 21st century issue that I'm very excited about. And I could go on. The biggest one is climate change. This is our biggest 21st century issue, an existential threat. And the WTO and trade have to be part of the solution. We see changing patterns of comparative advantage with climate change. Areas that used to produce certain kinds of food are now probably not going to be able to produce it because of drought. 
Others may not because of floods. So we see shifting comparative and competitive advantage. And the only way to bridge the gap to make the world have access to all these goods is for trade to help bridge that gap of changing comparative and competitive advantages. What's the right way for national security interests to be factored into that? You know, that's an increasing focus of, of policymakers, but there certainly seems some risk that this expanding definition of national security could threaten to blow up the whole system. What's, what's the right way to understand how those concerns should fit into this picture? Well, of course, you know, uh, national security issues speak directly to what we are trying in reforming the dispute settlement system, because part of the problem the United States has is the interpretation that has been made in past rulings on the issue of national security. And uh, there are disagreements on that. And I think this is an area where dialogue is certainly going to be needed among members to see whether the way it's been defined in the past with respect to dispute settlement is still valid, needs to be changed. How do we do that? What do we mean in order not to turn it into arena in which for everything people say we cannot do this or we can't stick with agreements because of national security issues. There are certainly very valid national security reasons and countries are best able to determine their national security wants, needs and concerns. That being said, I think WTO members need a very strong dialogue among each other to come to terms with how we must view this issue going forward. Thank you so much for joining me at what I know is an extremely busy time and for the wonderful piece in our July-August issue, Why the World Still Needs Trade. Thanks so much, and we'll look forward to continuing this conversation in the future. Thank you, Dan. Take care. Thank you for listening. You can find the articles that we discussed on today's show at foreignaffairs.com. The Foreign Affairs Interview is produced by Kate Brannon, Julia Fleming-Dresser, and Molly McEnany. Special thanks also to Grace Finlayson, Caitlin Joseph, Nora Revenaugh, Asher Ross, Gabrielle Sierra, and Marcus Zacharia. Our theme music was written and performed by Robin Hilton. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you heard, please take a minute to rate and review it. We release a new show every other Thursday. Thanks again for tuning in. 